1: From an early age, we are taught to fear the unknown, to be afraid of what we do not understand. Well, you're about to discover that what you do know can not only hurt you, but can scare you to death. (laughs) Thirteen authors from around the world have been assembled to explore the very notion that learning about the unknown can have terrifying results. The Wicked Library presents 13 Wicked Tales, our first anthology, featuring Stephanie M. Wytovich, Jessica McHugh, KB Goddard, Lydia Peaver, and so many others. With an introduction from Daniel Foytek, and new artwork from Jeanette Andromeda, not to mention an intro from yours truly. (laughs) Step inside, kiddies. It's story time at the Wicked Library. Available in paperback and Kindle on (laughs) Amazon.com. Learn what you fear and fear what you learn. Kiddies. Have a seat, but don't relax. I am your librarian. And this time, there's plenty to be afraid of. Hold on to yourselves before something else grabs hold of you. Don't worry about the lights. It's darker than ever now. Start screaming something extra wicked this way comes.
2: <laughs> For our first story, a woman struggles with the loss of her wife and a dark truth in Perverse by Meg Halfdahl told by Jessica McAvoy custom scored by our good friend Nico Viteze of We Talk of Dreams.
3: Her verse by Meg Halfdahl. The fog reminded me of the day Nellie died. It clung to our ankles and tickled our pant legs with its amorphous grasp. Nellie, always the romantic, had called the soupy mist beautiful. Now, the fog was made of ice, It gripped my neck with frozen pinpricks until I coughed into the elbow of my corduroy peacoat. I raised my head, taking in the strange, hilly expanse of Ashton Cemetery. Dead, gnarled leaves blanketed the graves, where snow would soon follow. I blinked at the random mix of new and old headstones. They dotted the landscape in varying shades of gray. One mottled stone to my left had the name Emily etched in faint letters. The single year beneath, 1884, sent a chill, colder than the fog, to the pit of my belly. I gripped the curved handle of my cane, keenly aware of the sea of bones decaying in the soil beneath my sneakers. Nelly was beside a mausoleum crawling with brittle vines. She was forever tucked into eternity in spot 340A. I consulted my plot map, making certain it was her headstone I was nearing with my awkwardly slow stride. I had been in the hospital when she'd been buried. This fact was often more haunting than her death. I'd awoken in the night several times since her funeral, sweating as though from a nightmare every time i felt as if i'd forgotten something vital that i'd missed the most important of events satisfied that i had found her in the labyrinth and cemetery i crunched the paper map into the pocket of my coat the bottom of my cane thumped on a rock as i leaned over and took in the achingly fresh scent of her grave eleanor juba okiro beloved daughter Wife, friend. April 15th, 1991 to October 13th, 2020. A wallop of grief overwhelmed me. My knees buckled, and I heard the distant sound of my cane clanging against Nellie's headstone. The sensation of dewy soil invaded the seat of my jeans. It came before I realized I'd fallen. Bitter wind picked up the curls of my hair, sending them into my wet eyes. I brushed the strands away, concentrating on the rock. The bits of granite twinkled in the diminishing light. The memory of rocky edges, of that foggy spring day on Mount Thomas, threatened to buoy to the surface of my soul. I shook it away. Nellie, I croaked. This is all my fault. I brought my injured legs up to my chest, ignoring the pain. I'm so, so sorry. Snot dribbled in a bitter puddle down the back of my throat and onto my tongue. Azalea? I froze. Panic, intense as a razor-sharp knife, pierced my consciousness. Nellie? I reached out with my left hand toward the glistening stone. Dear, what are you doing? The hearty voice filled my insides with warmth. Oh! I pivoted on my soggy butt toward the familiar sound. Nellie's mother, Annie, kneeled at my side. You've fallen. She frowned, causing the ebony skin of her forehead to become a tangle of lumpy wrinkles. It's my fault. I couldn't control the tremble of my bottom lip. Hush. Annie wrapped me up in her considerable arms. Stand up with me. I squeezed my eyes shut as she hoisted me up against her hip. My right arm, encased in a cast and strapped tightly to my abdomen, screamed in agony. Once I was steady on my feet. Annie stepped respectfully over Nellie's grave to grab my cane. I'm sorry I snuck up on you, Azalea. I just wanted to say a quick hello to... Eleanor. I held the cane with a shaking hand. No, I'm glad. Although Annie's presence deepened the ache in my heart, I craved her proximity. She had Nellie's lively, almond eyes and her thick hair held the same scent of eucalyptus. Annie gripped my left shoulder with her meaty hand. Stop this nonsense about anything being your fault. She stared at her daughter's headstone. Nellie loved you. You were a good wife to her. The best, so she said. The nearly imperceptible ghost of a smile played across Annie's lips. I held my fingers to my mouth, feeling a smile there too. Ashamed, I let it crumble back into a quaking frown. It was my idea to go hiking. The reality caused me to list further into my mother-in-law's side. In that fucking fog. She held me close, cloaking me in that heavenly scent. Hush now, hush. We stayed that way for a long while, both mesmerized by the smooth stone that marked Nellie's final destination. The icy mist nipped at the exposed skin of my wrist. As I rubbed it against my coat's pocket, I thought of my wife. A few weeks ago, I had been deep in my studies, preparing for a lecture on Edgar Allan Poe's Imp of the Perverse. For my students in Gothic American Fiction, Nellie had come into my home office soundlessly, surprising me with a touch on the back of my neck with frozen fingers. She cackled as I howled in shock. I chased her through our narrow bungalow, skidding across the slippery wooden floor like an overexcited puppy. It ended in the messy ruin of pillows and quilts piled on our bed. Her laugh grew more raucous as I straddled her, tickling her ribs. Her ice-cold hands grabbed at my cheeks. She pulled me down into a deep and surprisingly serious kiss. I thought I might cry at the vivid memory, yet it seemed I'd been hollowed out. You hungry? Annie's breath came out in a steamy puff. It finally occurred to me what seemed so wrong about Nellie's headstone. I should have brought her flowers. Gardenias. Next time. Every vein in my body pulsed with grief. I glanced down at my hand curled around the cane, and the other feebly strapped to my body. I couldn't have carried a bouquet, but I still hated myself for coming empty-handed. Are you hungry, Azalea? Annie repeated. I shook my head. I think I need to be alone. I braved a glance into those vibrant, almond eyes. Annie regarded me with such palpable pity that I instantly turned away. She sniffled. You sure? I feel like walking. Annie took in a sharp breath. I could sense her disapproval through the obscuring curtain of my curls. You were just on your butt. She sighed. What if you fall again? Fall. The word stuck in my awareness like a jagged popcorn kernel. I saw a flash of Nellie tumbling beside me, blood trickling from her nostril. My heart pounded against my ribcage. I'll be fine. I cough. Cold, prickly air filled my lungs and restored my mind. Walking's good for me. Annie gave an indignant huff. Call me. Anytime. Even if you just want to come over for some agusi soup and plantains. My belly gurgled at the thought of Annie's authentic Nigerian food. She'd brought me some in the hospital, still warm and smelling of good memories. It had been a stark contrast from the cream of wheat and flaccid toast I'd been subsisting on. As I'd greedily eaten Annie's cooking in my hospital bed, guilt, fanged and vicious, had come. It came now, too. It pulled at the direction of my thoughts, creating a hot shame in the center of my soul. How could I enjoy fried plantains, when Nelly was dead, when I had seen the glistening gristle of her exposed collarbone poking through, when I had seen the floppy edge of her tongue loll from her mouth after she'd nearly bitten it in two. How could I? Annie left me alone. She hugged me tight before descending down the slight hill toward the dirt parking lot. I waited in the oppressive silence listening for the faraway sound of her clattering old jeep to start up. It finally did. Goodbye, Nellie. My voice was strange, foreign. I'll be back. My cane sunk into the fragile blanket of leaves as I hobbled away. It bothered me to leave her there, cold, alone. I carefully maneuvered between two ancient stones... Trying to concentrate on each step as I snaked down the path toward Shoreline Avenue. When I glanced up, a gargoyle perched on the edge of an opulent marble grave bore through me with its soulless eyes. Its anguished face, frozen in a terrifying mix of anger and grief, caused me to grip my cane so tightly the blood rushed from my knuckles. Shoreline Avenue's sidewalk twisted away from the street, forming into a leisure walk beside Lake Ferris. I followed that branch, eager to be distracted by the gray, quiet beauty of the lake. Mist hovered above the choppy waters, making it seem as though Lake Ferris was at the end of the universe. I shuddered at the thought of it being a foggy precipice, A couple walked by me, headed in the opposite direction. They wore matching red cheeks and sunny smiles. I couldn't help the envy in my heart. That could have been Nellie and me, strolling along the lake's edge in the last shred of daylight. Dark and muddy despair colored the world around me. I became keenly aware of the sharp pain in my injured shoulder, and the pull of the muscles in my weak legs. The cane rattled in my grasp as I collapsed onto a park bench. It was placed as a respite on the lake walk, several feet off the main sidewalk and nestled between dead lilac bushes. The cold and unforgiving breeze slapped my exposed cheeks. I bit down on my bottom lip, holding in the pain. Lake Ferris seemingly infinite, stretched out before me. I took in several measured breaths, concentrating on the foamy water rather than the morbid direction of my thoughts. Somewhere, a seagull gave a haunting shriek. It was then, as I gazed out at the night, quickly overtaking the murky horizon, that the arctic touch of fingers tickled the nape of my neck. I instinctively lurched forward, causing my cane to clatter to the paver stones. Nellie's distinctive, throaty laugh filled the hollows of my mind. The panic that had come when Annie had surprised me at the cemetery returned, double in vigor. My heart thrashed against my ribs like a struggling crow in a cage. I reached to the back of my neck with my left hand feeling Nellie's icy touch still clamped on my tender skin. Eleanor? I squeaked. Is that you? I rarely used her formal name. Too frightened to look, I kept my head bowed as I waited for a reply. Although, I already knew she was with me. The faint yet spicy scent of eucalyptus tinged my nostrils. It's me. The whispered words seemed to trickle out from the wind. A sob escaped me. I pinched my eyes shut, enduring the barrage of warring emotions inside. My logical, professorial brain withered like the decayed lilacs at my feet. Had she clawed her way up through the fresh dirt? Had she clambered behind me, hiding in the shadows as others passed? I sensed the figure removing its ghostly hand from my neck. It, she, sat down beside me, impossibly creaking the bench with weight. We peer into the abyss, my dead wife mused. Those words, strangely familiar, imprinted themselves on the surface of my brain. I repeated them on a silent, inward loop. How... how are you? A hot tear trailed down my cheek. My eyes remained glued shut. We grow sick and dizzy. Our first impulse is to shrink from danger. Nellie sniffled next to me. Unaccountably, we remain. A cloud of something noxious, worse than the most bitter of halitosis invaded my nose. You don't make sense. I held my belly with my one usable hand. It felt as though I was on a carnival ride, sloshing from side to side. What are you saying? The bench creaked as Nellie shifted, moving closer to me. By slow degrees, our sickness and dizziness and horror become merged in a cloud of unnameable feeling. Stop it! A surprising crackle of anger, like a deafening bolt of lightning, came over me. My eyelids popped open. Nellie, dead for 22 days, blinked at me through the mist. Her almond eyes no longer held their mischievous sparkle. They were now a milky, lifeless yellow. I remembered lying at the bottom of the stony cliff, staring at those same horrifying orbs as I bled into the dirt. When I was found and hoisted up on the plastic cot by the first responders, I had comforted myself with the assurance I would never have to see Nellie that way again. I should have known. I should have known she'd come back to me. Oh, Nellie. I breathed. Oh. Blood, the color of rusted pennies, began to drip from her nose. She ignored it as she ignored the crusty gash at her jugular, the jutting white gristle of her collarbone. Her face, once full, held sallow, crepe-like cheeks. I scooted away from her, ashamed at my action, but wholly terrified. By gradations, she continued. Still more imperceptible, this cloud assumes shape. Stop! I screamed.
0: What are you talking about?
3: Nellie licked at the blood on her pale lips. When her bluish tongue slipped out, I saw the deep valley where she had nearly bitted in two. It's your project. Your lecture. Her cloudy eyes fixed on me. Don't you remember Azalea? I thought of my books and my laptop waiting at home on my desk. I hadn't seen them since the day of our hike. I hadn't really even considered when I'd get back to teaching. You mean, the imp of the perverse? The lecture I was preparing on Poe? Another gust of Nellie's death scent flooded my senses. I held down a gag. She nodded her head gravely, causing the flap of skin at her jugular to undulate. All right, yes. You read it then? She nodded once more. I shivered noticing the crescent moon growing hardier in the blackening sky behind Nellie. All that doesn't matter, Nellie. My work. That day. All that matters is we get you... (laughs) get you home. Home? Was that our cramped bungalow on Fox Street? Or was it a short walk up shoreline, back to Ashton Cemetery? Rippling shudders of disgust came over me at the thought of Nellie snuggling in our bed, smearing it with the gelatinous blood curdled on her chest. It does matter. She reached out with a filthy hand. I shrunk away, pressing my hip into the bench's arm. Nellie's lips trembled. You loved me? Yes. I tingled with the memory of before. Of when Nellie looked like herself. Of when I had two working arms to embrace her. We barely fought. She coughed. Drizzles of old, thick blood edged both corners of her mouth. We were faithful to each other, and even talked about having children. Her voice, so innocent, so calm, bore a sharp poker into my ears a formidable wave of guilt and anguish rose up into my chest. So, she carefully crossed her legs, which were swathed in the velvet skirt she'd been buried in. It is the only reason why. Why? I parroted the word. It is merely the idea of what would be our sensations during the sweeping precipitancy of a fall from such a height. She continued to quote Edgar Allan Poe's story, slowly enunciating each word with her injured tongue. And this fall, this rushing annihilation, for the very reason that it involves the one most ghastly and loathsome of all the most ghastly and loathsome images of death and suffering, which have ever presented themselves to our imagination. For this very cause, do we now the most vividly desire it? Nellie took in a deep and clattering breath. Realization woke the darkest compartments of my soul. I had hoped my nightmares were just that, figments of my fevered imaginings. Products of the terrible stress I had endured from the accidental fall of myself and my beautiful, funny, whip smart wife. No, it had been the perverse. The sensation we all feel when on the edge of a precipice. The strange, counterintuitive desire to jump or to push. I stared into Nellie's dead eyes welcoming the memory of what I had done. It had been the act of a single second, yet its consequences reverberated across time. We had been standing on the foggy edge of the cliff, marveling at the rocky beauty. Nellie had rubbed the toe of her sneaker on the brink, chatting about where we should grab dinner once we hiked back down to our car. Sushi? Sushi? She placed her hand above her eyes to gain a better view of the canyon. Or, I don't know, Ty? The perverse had filled me to the brim with its ugly notions. I swayed beside her, wondering. Wondering what might happen if I... My right hand, as though it had a brain of its own, thrust out and struck her in the ribs. Regret, sudden and palpable, clanged inside me with violent alarm. Nellie slipped. I watched in slow, inexorable terror as she pitched forward. She managed to twist toward me as her feet skidded. Her wide and confused eyes searched for an explanation as she instinctively grabbed my wrist for purchase. We tumbled together until the rocks inevitably tore us apart. Now, now, My wife sat beside me, still needing an answer. I loved you. I reached out with a quivering hand, braving a slight touch of Nellie's lap. I still love you. Nellie cocked her head, waiting. Instead of concentrating on the jagged rip at her throat, I focused on the smooth skin of her chin. You're right you were always right a strange humorless smile came to her lips i said examine these similar actions as we will we shall find them resulting solely from the spirit of the perverse we perpetuate them because we feel we should not i quoted the story that i had been preparing for my students The story Nellie had evidently read as I got ready for our last hike. To think, that book was probably still open to that precise page on my desk in our little bungalow on Fox Street. Home. I screwed my eyes shut. I'm sorry, Nellie. She was gone. The frigid wind took her home. When I opened my eyes... The brightest stars were fighting their way through the fog to sparkle upon the lake. I stood on wobbly legs, forgetting the cane at my feet. Leaves crumbled beneath my shoes as I left the paver stones for the uneven rocks lining the seawall. Nellie, alive and laughing, filled every corner of my mind's eye. If there be no friendly arm to check us, I recited Poe's words as I tested the hard edge of the precipice. For if we fail in a sudden effort to prostrate ourselves backward from the abyss, we plunge and are destroyed. The prickling, hungry fangs of the perverse sank into my brainstem. An intense wish to jump, to sense the air on my face, to crash into oblivion, came and did not let go. I am certain, reader, you have experienced this very craving while standing on a bridge or the edge of a balcony. Home called for me, as did Nellie on the surface of the wind. I obeyed.
1: Where do you think you're going? There's more story to come. (laughs) Don't you want us to keep the lights on?
2: (laughs) Today's episode of the Wicked Library is brought to you in part by our good friends over at Warby Parker. You've heard us talk about Warby Parker before. If you listen to the show, you know that our executive producer, Nelson W. Piles, got himself an in-home try-on kit got to try on the glasses, show them to his friends, show them to me, show them to his wife and daughters, figure out which pair made him look best. And now he has got a styling pair of sunglasses. These are good quality eyeglasses made by a company that you can trust. Now, one of the questions I always had is what's behind the name Warby Parker? Well, it's pretty cool. They were inspired by the master wordsmith and pop culture icon, Mr. Jack Kerouac. Two of his earliest characters were named Zag Parker and Warby Pepper. And they just took the best parts from each and made it their name. And just like Kerouac inspired a generation to take a road less traveled and to see the world through a different lens, that's exactly what Warby Parker does. Plus, you'll have some extra money left over to take you on your journey. Not only do the glasses and sunglasses look great, they're a great quality lens and a great quality frame. Glasses start at $95, including prescription lenses. Lenses include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. And I'll tell you what, the nice thing about it is you can take a quiz, answer a few questions, and they'll suggest some great looking glasses that are totally personalized to fit your face and style. So if you struggle to figure out what kind of glasses look good on your face, they will give you a hand with that. You get five pairs of glasses, try them on for five days. You don't even have to buy any. If you decide you don't like them, you send them all back. Or you can pick out the ones you like best and ship them back with a prepaid return shipping label. Head to warbyparker.com forward slash wicked to take the quiz and order your free home try on kit today. And something really cool for those of you who prefer contact lenses, they now have Scout by Warby Parker, comfortable, breathable, and affordable daily contact lenses. Wear Scout by Warby Parker contact lenses for less than a dollar and a quarter a day. You can order a trial pack that includes six days worth of contacts for only $5 and then receive $5 off your next Warby Parker order. Learn more at warbyparker.com forward slash wicked. Order the free home try-on kit to request a trial of Scout contact lenses for just $5. Again, at warbyparker.com forward slash wicked. Now, the cool thing about these glasses, they did send samples out. Each pair of lenses comes in their own little package. Doesn't use a lot of waste. So they're good for the environment and they're good for your eyes. So whether you prefer glasses, sunglasses, or contact lenses, there's no reason not to try out Warby Parker at warbyparker.com forward slash wicked. In our second tale, an institutionalized man finally understands the truth. Told by Graham Rowett. With a custom score written by Nico Vitese of We Talk of Dreams. Next, by David Greske. I've heard things, terrible
4: things, whimpering, moaning, and screams that curdled the blood in my veins. I've seen things, too, things too ghostly to explain. But the images will haunt my dreams and my waking hours for the rest of my life, however short it may be. Rumors of the horrid experiments have been circulating for as long as I could remember. I thought they were just tales told by frustrated parents to discipline young children. Be good, or they'll come and take you away and lock you in a cold, damp cell and do terrible things to you. Of course, those terrible things were never explained. Sometimes a child's imagination could conjure things more frightening left on its own. As children grew, including myself, these ghost stories faded. As the mind matured, they became nothing more than tales told around a campfire. The boogeyman was only a pile of clothes in the corner. The thing that opened the closet door late at night was just a faulty latch. The cry of the dead was the wind through the trees. But the gossip of the experimentations happening behind the walls of the Blackstone Sanitarium, well, that was something else entirely. I became obsessed with the asylum which sat on a small knoll behind my house and was visible from my bedroom window when I was still a youngster. At night, I'd lie in bed and stare up at the imposing chunk of black brick and limestone, watching the lights move from window to window to window. What could those doctors and nurses be up to at such late hours? What happened once the lights went out? Did I really hear screams coming from the place, or was it just my overactive imagination? Twenty-two years later, Blackstone still had me in its mysterious grip. And I knew if I didn't satiate the thirst the building held on me, I would go insane. Getting admitted to the hospital was easy. I walked in the front door, approached the admissions desk, and said, I'm hearing voices. A lot of people hear voices, sir, the admitting nurse, Carol, said, unimpressed while she continued to pound away on her keyboard. But I hear voices from the dead. They'll tell me to do terrible things to people like you. Sometimes at night the shadows whisper things to me, and I think I want to do the things they ask me. I think it would be fun. I don't know what I said, but something made Nurse Carol stop banging on her keyboard and look up. The admitting nurse looked like Louise Fletcher from that 1975 movie with Jack Nicholson, except for her fire engine red hair and icy eyes. She wore too much lipstick, too. Bright red. It made her look like an old whore. A pair of glasses hung from her neck on a delicate gold chain. Here, fill this out. Nurse Carol pushed a clipboard in my face. Her fingernails were painted the same garish color as her lips. I completed and signed the forms, double-checking to make sure I checked the Voluntary Commitment box on the second page. By doing so, I could leave at any time. I handed the clipboard back to the nurse. She snatched it from me with the swiftness of a striking cobra. Follow me, she said, standing from the chair and waddling around the desk to meet me. She may have looked like Louise Fletcher, but her body looked more like Mama Cass. I followed the nurse to a small room just off the waiting area. Dr. Hall will be with you in just a moment, Carol said. She tossed the clipboard on the small table. Dr. Hall's the psychiatrist? I inquired. No, he's our medical doctor. Medical doctor? Oh, don't worry. It's just a routine checkup. All our patients have one. It won't hurt. Much. Nurse Carol smiled and closed the door. Time passed. So much so, I thought they might have forgotten about me. Finally, the door opened and Dr. Hall stepped into the room. Hall was an odd-looking man. Brown hair sat like a bird's nest on his head. His round face was the color of spoiled milk... Thin lips, big eyes, and a bent nose completed his puss. He was tall, almost abnormally so, and his limbs didn't quite look proportional to the rest of his body. The doctor picked up the clipboard, took out a pen from his smock, and scribbled a couple of notes on the file. He dropped the clipboard back on the desk, tossed the pen in the silver tray next to a notepad, and uttered a single word. Strip. I wanted to protest, saying the room is much too cold to be standing around buck-ass naked, but I remembered Nurse Carol said the exam was routine and obliged. I've had many physicals throughout the years, but no exam was as strange as this one. Dr. Hall just stared at my naked body, looking at it as if it were a lost treasure. Turn around, Hall said. I turned. Bend over and grab your ankles. I did, and seconds later felt the doctor's cold hands on my buttocks. He mumbled something I couldn't make out, and then his finger, at least I hoped it was his finger, probed me. The uncomfortable presence of Hall's exploration built up a pressure in my abdomen that screamed for release, but I held back. It would have been rude to fart in the doctor's face. In hindsight, however, I wish I would have. Dr. Hall's finger was inside me way too long. All right, he said, stripping off the latex gloves. Everything looks fine. So I pass? Indeed you do. The doctor opened the drawer under the table and took out a cream-colored jumpsuit. Put this on. I can't wear my own clothes? No, all the patients here wear these. Volunteers like you wear this color. Our other patients wear brown. Volunteers? Oh, I see. Get dressed and I'll have Nurse Carol show you to your room in the volunteer wing of the hospital. Volunteer. That word again. I'd find out soon enough that my definition of the word and the staff at Blackstone Sanitarium's definition was completely different. I slipped into the jumpsuit, and when the doctor's back was turned, snatched the pen and pad from the table and dropped them into my pocket. If I was going to document my stay here, I needed a way to record the information. Suite 218A. That's what was etched in the brass plate affixed to the steel door. Again, Blackstone's definition of suite differed vastly from my own. The room was more a glorified jail cell than anything else. Slightly larger than the standard 6x6 prison cage, the cement walls were painted a quiet green. Instead of a steel slab mounted to the wall, a single bed stood beneath the small window overlooking the courtyard. There were no bars on the window, and a crack in the casement allowed it to open about six inches. Wide enough to let fresh air in, but too narrow to crawl out. A clean porcelain sink and stool were in one corner of the room. A half-wall separated the toilet area from the rest of the space, providing some privacy in case someone would look into the door window while you did your business. There was a stack of books, mostly autobiographies, in one corner, and a small writing desk and chair in the other. I found it strange there was a desk, as paper and writing tools were prohibited inside the asylum. This, of course, was my reason for pilfering these things from the doctor's office. The suite was located in the west wing of the hospital, the same wing I saw from my bedroom window in my youth. It was two doors down from the elevator and across from another steel door marked private. I hope you find your room comfortable, Nurse Carroll said. I'm sure this will be more than adequate. I don't plan on staying too long. Of course not, the nurse said. No one ever does. I tried to smile, but found I couldn't. Something in the timbre of her voice chilled me. Sleep did not come easy to me that first night. I laid in bed listening to the moans of the old building, the groans of the ventilation system, the creak of the wooden floors, the whisper of the elevator as it opened and closed, as my heart ticked away the minutes. I didn't hear any screaming, at least not the first night. I woke to the sight of Nurse Carroll and Dr. Hall staring down at me. Their unexpected appearance startled me, and I almost fell out of bed. Dr. Hall saved me from the tumble by grabbing my buttocks and shoulder with his cold, big hands and pushing me back onto the mattress. As he did so, the thin sheet covering my nude body sloughed away. Nurse Carroll had the decency to turn away, but the doctor continued his gaze at me, his eyes sparkling with perverse excitement and a half smile carved into his face. Then the doctor did the strangest thing. He took a tape measure from his pocket, placed one end to my shoulder, and ran it down to the tip of my index finger. Nurse, nurse, look, he said. Nurse Carol turned around reluctantly. For a nurse, she sure seemed embarrassed by the sight of a naked body. If anyone should be self-conscious, it was me, given how the doctor couldn't stop his lustful ogling. Carol lifted her glasses from her ample bosom and poked them on. Yes, doctor, he is a wonderful specimen. Specimen? Get dressed, the doctor said. Breakfast is being served in the commons. You don't want to miss it. Nurse Carol and Dr. Hall left my room. They didn't lock the door. Come to think of it, the door had never been locked. I guess since I committed myself willingly, I was free to come and go as I please. I met Devon at breakfast. He wore the same color jumpsuit as me, and like me, he was here of his own free will. A slim fellow, his jumpsuit hung on him like clothes hanging on a line to dry. He had a pasty complexion, accentuated by his jet-black hair. He walked with a limp, because his left leg was shorter than his right. A thin, crooked white scar ran from the tip of his jaw to the right corner of his mouth. I wondered if he'd been wounded in a knife fight or something else damaged his face. Devin set his breakfast tray on the table and slid into the steel folding chair across from me. He looked down at my breakfast, stared at it. ''I... I... I... wouldn't... eat... eat the... bacon,'' he said. ''Why?'' Because it it, isn't real. Besides the stutter, I noticed my new friend had a terrible twitch in the right eye. Each time he spoke, his eyelid fluttered like a butterfly. If it isn't real, then what is it? I said. Devin looked around the commons. I think he might have been afraid someone was listening. He leaned across the table. So close to me I felt his breath against my cheek. It's people. I dropped my fork. It bounced off the plastic tray and hopped across the concrete floor. Bits of egg fell from my open mouth. Excuse me, Devin, what did you say? Next, Devin said. Next, next, next. Devin stood, pushed his chair back, picked up his tray of food, and wandered away. He wore a cream-colored jumpsuit but I had a suspicious feeling he'd be graduating to a brown one very soon. The day, my third, turned to night. The upper part of my jumpsuit undone, the sleeves hung by my hips like an extra pair of arms. I stood at the sink, watching water fill the basin. Steam rose from the surface, clouding the mirror in front of me. Since my stay, I've interacted with a shy nurse a perverted doctor, and a nutcase wearing the wrong color jumpsuit. But I've bared witness to no screaming. Maybe the shrieks I'd heard when I was a child were only imagined, and those imaginings followed me into adulthood. I closed the tap, swiped my hand across the mirror, opened the cabinet, and took out the razor and the can of shaving cream. I moistened my face and then lathered it with the fruity-smelling foam. I touched the razor to my face preparing to make the first stroke, when a scream shook the walls. So unexpectedly had the screech come that the razor slipped, biting into my jaw and opening a fine cut into my flesh. The razor fell into the water. A red swirl rose from the blade where metal met flesh and formed a pink ribbon on the shaving foam. I grabbed the towel off the toilet tank and wiped the froth from my face. I slipped into the upper half of my jumpsuit and zipped it closed. Heading for the door, the caterwaul came again. It came from everywhere, yet nowhere. I stepped into the hallway, looked up and down the foyer. I was the only one there. All the other doors were closed. Either the others hadn't heard the shrieks, or chose not to. I ran to the elevator and punched the button on the steel plate. The door opened before I released the button, as if the car was waiting for me. Inside, I examined the control panel. There were four white disks, one for each floor on the stainless plate. Which one do I press? Which one will take me to the origin of the agony? The third scream answered my question. I searched for the button that would take me into the bowels of the building, but the ones I saw only indicated floors. Then I saw it. A black, smaller button set away from the other four. I pressed it. The door closed. The elevator jerked and descended. The elevator slammed to a stop as abruptly as it started. The door clambered open, and I stared into the black abyss of the black stone basement. I stepped out of the elevator and froze. My heart thumped. The blood rushed between my ears, an angry river tumbling over the rapids. My lungs refused to inflate. I have an innate fear of basements. The dim dankness terrifies me. The unpleasant mustiness is suffocating. Things in dark corners wait for me. And all those terrors were here, multiplied tenfold. Illuminated by bare bulbs suspended from a network of hanging extension cords, the blackstone basement was cavernous. The walls were slick with some kind of slime. The packed earthen floor was slippery with a fine sheen of mud. Something skittered in the HVAC above me. There were no windows down here, so the provided light ebbed and flowed as I walked through the area. Down here, sounds were amplified. A sliver of light poked from under the door up ahead. A window of frosted glass was cut into the panel. I cupped my hands around my eyes, leaned forward, and attempted to gaze through the glass. I saw movement and shadows in the room, but the coated window made it impossible to distinguish anything else. Placing my ear against the door, I heard a pained moan. I recognized the owner, Devon. Next. I reached for the doorknob, but it wouldn't turn. Then I saw a keycard security plate mounted on the jam. The door was locked. Of course it would be. Whatever diabolical experiments were going on behind the door had to be locked away from prying eyes. Somehow, I had to get into that room. I stepped away from the door, taking a minute to examine my options, but the constant skittering above me made it difficult to think. And the skittering above me gave me the answer. The HVAC system ran directly into the room, and there was an access vent right above me. I gathered half a dozen wooden crates I saw as I walked through the underground space and stacked them beneath the ventilation grid. The makeshift staircase wobbled but if I was mindful as I climbed, it wouldn't topple. As I ascended the stack, I thought about how I was going to loosen the grid from the rest of the structure. I had no tools, and the grill most certainly would somehow be fastened down. To my surprise, nothing secured the grid in place. I pulled the grate down. Hinged on one side, it opened like a door. I stuck my head in the opening. The air smelled of dust and mold. It was dark, too. Pitch black. Then I hoisted myself up. I'm not a large man, but the area inside the HVAC system was narrow. I felt the tin sides of the chamber touch my shoulders. The top was a mere inch from my head. Something warm and furry brushed against my bare arm and scrambled across the feet. I was certain it was a rat, but in the absolute darkness, it felt so much larger. My arms against my chest, I pulled myself through the canal. Trying to be as quiet as possible. Twice I ran into a network of cobwebs and felt the residents scramble across my face. I slid through a patch of something slimy and cold. It smelled like oil, but without the luxury of sight, I couldn't be sure. An exposed screw caught my jumpsuit just above my left ankle. I heard the fabric tear and felt the sharp tip of the screw against my skin. I waited for the warm sensation of flowing blood it didn't come. Relieved that the encounter didn't gouge my flesh, tetanus was the last thing I needed. Sweat ran from my forehead and into my eyes, but unable to raise my arms high enough to wipe the salty moisture from my eyes, I had to tolerate the stinging. At last, I saw a square of dirty beam through the grate just ahead of me. This was the grate that allowed heated and cooled air into the mysterious room. I scooted to the grate peered through the honeycomb grid and found myself looking at some kind of laboratory. Dozens of stainless steel shelves lined one of the pale ochre walls. Glass jars filled with yellow liquid sat on the shelves. A variety of human parts floated in the fluid. A pair of cabinets with glass doors stood next to the shelving. Hazmat suits hung from plastic hangers inside the cabinet. Strips of what looked like beef jerky hung on the rods of a drying rack in one corner. I could smell the rich, smoky aroma, even from this distance. I wouldn't eat the bacon. I heard Devin's voice whisper in my ear. It's people. I shuddered. Maybe Devin wasn't as nuts as I thought. Machinery and monitors, all pinging and whirling in unison, covered another wall. I wasn't sure what any of the equipment did but I saw a list of names scrolling horizontally on several of the monitors. Was my name one of those moving so rapidly up the screen? And if it was, why exactly was it? On a hospital bed laid Devon. His arms and legs, restrained by thick leather straps, strained as he struggled to free himself. A pair of wires, one green and one red, grew from his temples. Another wire, this one black and thicker, was attached to his chest, just above his heart. Devon thrashed his head from side to side, then suddenly stopped and locked eyes with mine. He'd seen me staring at him through the grate. I feared he'd call out, alerting the others in the room of my presence. But he didn't. He lay there, pleading with his pain-filled, terrified eyes. Next. Suddenly, his body stiffened. The lights in the laboratory dimmed, and the crackle of electricity filled the room. When the lights brightened, Devon was dead. Black smoke rose from his charred body and drifted into the vent. It smelled like cooked bacon, and I felt my gorge rise. Then they walked into view, and I fought the urge to scream. They were insectile creatures. Their bodies were covered in moldy, brown scales. Slender, rat-like tails sprouting from their posteriors, whipping through the air, separating the atmosphere with loud cracks. Long, multi-jointed arms and legs clicked as they moved. Instead of feet, clawed hooves were attached to the ankles. Pinchers replaced hands. Their heads were too large for their bodies. Coarse red hair sprouted from their skulls. Misshapen proboscises took the place of their mouths. Huge, iridescent, oval-shaped eyes dominated their faces. Devon had known the truth all along. He knew what they were. He tried to warn me. The word he uttered at breakfast wasn't next, but rather, insect. The taller of the creatures removed the wires from Devon and shut off the machine next to him. He... If it was a male, as there were no signs of genitalia, shook his head and stared at the body. He rolled the corpse on its side and probed it with his index finger. Now I understood. Those weren't hazmat suits in the cabinets. They were costumes. Disguised as staff, the monsters were free to roam about the hospital. They could pick and choose their next victim. Volunteer. Specimen. Specimen. And the tall creature was Dr. Hall. I jerked at the revelation, and my shoulder banged against the metal housing. The sound caught the attention of the room occupants. Dr. Hall looked in my direction. I slowly backed away from the grate, hoping the darkness of the space would hide me. The grate opened, and a shaft of light rose through the opening. Dr. Hall poked his head through the square... He looked one way and then the other. When his head disappeared down through the opening, I gave a silent sigh. Time to leave. I began backing up when I heard a popping sound. I heard the metal groan, felt it twist beneath me, and I fell through the ceiling. The screws and rivets holding the catacombs of the ventilation system were as old as the asylum. Time had worn away at the integrity of the fasteners. The weakened hardware coupled with my weight, caused the structure to collapse. I landed hard on the floor of the laboratory, plaster and dust raining down on me. The fifteen or so creatures, the same number of staffers at the Blackstone, turned when they heard the commotion. They moved towards me. I'll never forget the sound of their clawed hooves clicking on the tiled floor. They formed a tight circle around me. With their pincers, they poked me. They tasted me with their proboscises. Somehow I managed to find my voice. What kind of monsters are you? I said. We are not monsters, Dr. Hall said. It was strange hearing a human voice coming from an inhuman thing. We are interdimensional beings. I grabbed the proboscis, probing my ear, hold and ripped the organ from its owner. The creature shrieked and dropped back. The others, taking the attack as a warning, coward. Where did you come from? Oh, we have always been here, all around you. We're that feeling you get when you feel someone is watching you. We are that voice you hear when there's nobody around. We've been watching you for years, watching you grow, just as we watched that gentleman there. Dr. Hall pointed at the hospital bed. I looked at Devon. I just met him, and although I thought he was strange, I understood why now. We could have been friends, I thought. Why do you do this? Because we can. Your pain, your fear gives us joy. We drink it in like you drink a glass of milk. It is our addiction, and you are our drug. These institutions... These asylums provide the perfect cover to hide our true selves and feed our need. After all, who would believe a lunatic ranting about the likes of us? But every now and then someone like you, or him... The creature nodded towards the bed. Comes along and we just have to have you. So we wait. We are a very patient race. We are addicts, yes but very, very patient. I sprang to my feet and ran to the door. I pulled on the knob, but the door wouldn't open. Of course it wouldn't. I couldn't open it when I was on the other side. What possessed me to think it would be any different inside the room? I turned, pressed my back against the door, and felt the knob press against my spine. The horde moved closer. Nurse Carol. At least I thought it was Nurse Carol, and they all looked alike pushed her way through the crowd. She held a hypodermic in her right claw, the glass chamber filled with yellow-green syrup. I frantically scanned the room for another way out. There were no windows, no other doors. I was trapped. I was doomed. Dr. Hill joined the nurse. He stretched out his arm, beckoning me to take his claw. Come, he said. Sit on the bed. Relax. You're next.
2: Thank you for listening to today's episode of The Wicked Library. The Wicked Library is a Ninth Story Studios production, ninthstory.com. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com forward slash wicked library. You can be a part of helping us keep the shows coming for as little as $2 a month. Complete credits and full show notes, including links and information from today's episode, can be found on thewickedlibrary.com. You can also find links to our Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes page. Until next time, go ahead, leave the Christmas lights on. It makes it easier for the librarian to know you're ready for the Christmas special.
0: go for a ride. There are many stories here. Like this place. Like many things here. Some have become lost. But all lost things yearn to be found. And all stories long to be told. I've searched through my building. Gathering up stories from every floor. From the basement, To the ninth story, and every floor in between. Stories of choice, of the hopeless, the redeemable, and the lost. Stories that will unlock something inside of you, and carry you through fear to your future. Get your copy of the Liv's First Anthology on Amazon in print and Kindle. Let's go for a read. (laughs) Ha <laughs>